All right, everybody. Uh, I don't know if you noticed this, but we finally have an intro song. I'd like to give a huge shout out and thank you to uh, Sean Thomas Music, who put that together in literally less than five minutes. And I don't know if either of you know this, but he actually remixed my wedding dance, like for my wedding last year. He put together that whole mix for me. So thanks, Sean. Really appreciate you. Um, so Paul and I are super lucky this week. We've got Dr. Elise Mayfosh with us, and we are going to be talking to her about life and academia in a different country. So Elise, you want to give us a bit of a background on yourself? Yeah, sure. Hi, guys. Um, thanks for, for having me. I'm really excited to have this, this chat with you. So I did my undergrad at La Trobe University in Melbourne, in Australia, uh, and it was in biological sciences. And then I, at the end of undergrad, just couldn't stand uni and school anymore, and I just needed a break. <clears throat> so I had a year off and sort of just worked part-time, didn't do much and then realised how much I missed science and decided that I wanted to, to go on and, and do research and do an, an honours year and, and a PhD following that. So I went back to La Trobe and my lecturers that I had enjoyed hearing from so much in undergrad and approached three or four of them and said I'd be interested in doing honours in your lab and they all had um, really interesting projects and I was really interested in cancer research at the time. So I ended up scoring a position to do an honours project in Mark Hewlett's lab, looking at the protein called heparinase and how this protein was involved in cancer migration and metastasis. And so after that, I stayed in the same lab to start a PhD and sort of shifted focus a little bit, still looking at heparinase, but now looking at looking at that protein's role in immune cells and specifically natural killer cells because we thought that, well, if this protein is important for breaking down the extracellular matrix so that tumour cells can migrate, we figured that it would also probably have a role in immune cells migrating around the body. So I was basically looking at, yeah, the role of heparinase in natural killer cells using a bunch of different uh, mouse knockout models and ultimately found that, yep, heparinase is important for natural killer cell migration and that can ultimately have an effect on how tumours are cleared in, in this mouse model. So that was really interesting. And then wow. afterwards, yeah, <laughs> after that really quickly, I had the opportunity to stay in that lab, but again, shift focus um, and actually collaborate with a biotech company that had approached my boss because of his area of speciality and start a postdoc in that lab. So I did a postdoc for two years, basically characterising how their these, these two drugs in their portfolio could kill cancer cells. And basically um, that work is still still going ahead with, with an honours project that we were wrapping up last year. So that's still hopefully getting, getting published this year. Um, and so after that, I was lucky enough to be offered a position as scientific project manager with that company. So I'm now actually not in academia anymore, just in the last few months have migrated to an industry position, which I love. And maybe we'll talk about that later, but that's up to you guys. So yeah. Oh, we are definitely, that's what I was just typing out like extra <laughs> notes to be like, ask about this company. Like I, cause we were talking about this the other day and, and I think it is really important to like the discussion that we want to have today. So we are definitely going to be talking about that. Okay, great. That's so cool. At least you do such neat work. I'm, I want to go and read all your papers now. <laughs> 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 um, so, Paul, you want to start us off here? Yeah. So, 
What do you do in the industry world right now? Yeah, so uh, the main project that I'm involved in at the moment is trying to get a, a, a drug that we've got, that we've been working on for a number of years now, into a, the first in-human clinical trial for shingles. So you guys are familiar with shingles, you know? It's oh, yeah. yeah. Well, kind of. It's like uh, you get chicken pox and then in the future you have a really high risk for getting shingles, which is something to do with nerves, correct? Yeah, so it typically presents in people 50 plus as your immune system sort of starts to wind down, I suppose, and the virus can can sort of repropagate. And yeah, you're right, it, it yeah. can um, appear in the nerves and it can be really, really painful and can, you know, lots of patients suffer with it for weeks, if not months, and the pain, even once the rash is gone, can persist for for months and even years in some cases, it sort of never really goes away. So we're hoping that this um, new drug that we've got can make a difference for shingles patients. So we're, we're really keen to to get it into the first human in human trial to test wow. its efficacy. Very exciting. Hmm. That is really cool. I didn't realize shingles could last or persist that long. Yeah, it's nasty. Wow. Yeah. So you've done a lot of work and you've been in a couple different labs and your expertise is kind of like created this big umbrella and I'm curious of all the projects that you had been working on did you have any that were uh kind of terminated due to you know maybe potentially having insignificant data or not leading to where the story was trying to be told yeah definitely this is definitely the story of my honors and PhD project with heparinase ultimately um and I suppose when you say insignificant data I think of two things the first one is insignificant data, there was no difference, no effect, like no statistically significant difference. Um, but then also it could be, you know, you see a difference, but it's, you know, one one experiment or one sort of sort of side project and maybe it's not enough for a paper. Um, yeah. So probably both of those sort of happened to me. So we, we, we were sort of one of the side arms of the Heparinase projects we were looking at. Um, global heparinase knockout mice and seeing whether, you know, if you challenge them with a, a tumour model, do the tumours, say, grow faster? Are they larger? Do the animals, you know, succumb to the disease faster than than the, the wild-type mice? And, and what do their immune cells look like? You know, are there more immune cells? Do they have a different, you know, activation status and, and all of those things? And so some, some differences... Um, we did see some differences in, in some immune cell types and then others were sort of, you know, pretty much the same and it, it didn't really impact, um, ultimately didn't really impact the way that the mice could clear the tumours. So it was kind of a, I suppose, from my supervisor's perspective, not really that interesting, not really sexy. Mm -hmm. So we sort of just <laughs> left it at that, you know. Definitely think <laughs> yeah. it would be a whole other PhD project to explore those those subtle differences that we observed and, and then also making sure that the models were robust enough to actually see a difference if there was one. And with the variability that you get with animal experiments, making sure your sample size is right so that, you you know, you've met an appropriate power. And so there's a lot of different, different variables that we sort of had to meet and it was sort of not quite in the main story of my project. So we sort of just left it at that. So that will probably never get published it'll just sit in my thesis and and that's that's the story of that so definitely yeah definitely had that experience okay so we're not alone paul we're not alone 
Yeah, I mean, one of the big things we we wanted to talk about with the podcast is like a lot of that work that tells the story doesn't get published, and it would help science as a whole or help someone else's thesis project dissertation. Um, so yeah, we really just wanted to kind of focus on that and talk more about that. Yeah, so, sure. Yeah, yeah. So that work never got published; it's just sitting in a dissertation. Yeah, okay. yeah, and it, I don't think it'll ever go anywhere. We don't have anyone working on that project at the moment and we don't have any funding for that project so yeah I've definitely That's seen a lot of bummer. yeah in a it, being a part of a, a pretty big lab there was sort of two labs merged together out of maybe maybe there's 20 25 of us all together um and yeah. yeah so I've definitely heard of a number of side projects that have sort of just hit a dead end and they've left it at that and moved on to something else so there's lots of unpublished data sitting around in our lab for sure and that's one lab so what do you think the role of insignificant data is or was it actually insignificant and even though it's sitting there not really doing anything do you think it could have contributed to the the mm. story in like a fuller capacity or, or could it have contributed into making more of like a 3d picture yeah because like some data is insignificant in that there is no change and um or you see a change but it's not replicable it's not replicable yeah but if it had been published do you think it could have changed maybe the story for that pathway or you know mechanism yeah. that you're studying? okay i see what you're saying i think yeah this particular project is more like a very first maybe sort of exploratory proof of concept experiment mm -hmm. where you would then go on and build from that and we actually did try to put that data or those results in with the data from another chapter of my thesis and, and try and submit it all together but you know during the draft process we just decided it just didn't fit with the story so we ended up taking it out because we thought we'd probably have a better chance at getting it accepted for publication without it so ultimately yeah we took it out so yeah, it, it could add to a story, definitely, just not this story. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think that sometimes maybe it works better to, you know, sit on this data for a little while and just hang on to it until you can can build the project out. Um, yeah. If, if there were someone who, you know, were to repeat it, say, in a different lab, even in a different country or anywhere, it would be interesting to see if, they got the same results or how they interpreted it and and all of that so yeah, yeah i hope that answers your question oh yeah for sure i think so well so yeah i wanted to ask back in your time probably more so in academia did you feel any pressure to have positive results like when you were applying for grants or declaring your thesis dissertation was there still like a little bit of pressure on you when you're designing your methodology to be like well I really hope this works out, you know, so <laughs> to have, like you said, like the sexy results, you know? Yeah, so. absolutely. There's like, there's definitely so much pressure to have a positive result so that you can publish because that's the ultimate goal, right? And to get it published, it has to be sexy and it has to be, you know, a good story. Um, and maybe a side note, but it just sort of makes me think of this. I had a mentor that was think that always told us like, design your experiments and your projects so that you know ask the questions that no matter what the answer is it's an interesting answer so it might not be you know a positive result but in the context of what you're looking at whatever the answer is it's interesting and i thought that was a good <laughs> a good way to look at it he's definitely done it really well for himself and knows how to work the system <laughs> to his advantage 
advantage in, <laughs> in like a very admirable way and respectful, appropriate way. But yeah, it just goes to show how important in, in this industry the way it is now that interesting results are really important. It might be, say, important results or a big result, but if it's not interesting to people, then it won't get published in a in a journal or a big impact journal. Yeah. I actually have like a side question before we go on. Mm. Sorry, Paul. Have you ever seen like the question change based on the results? Oh, have you ever yeah. seen like, oh, I totally just changed my hypothesis because I ran the first two uh, versions of the experiment. It's completely different, but... Yeah, have you seen anything like that? Yeah, for sure. And then you end up going in a completely different direction and, and following that that story. I guess that can kind of change it, right? Like it can make insignificant data more interesting that you can change the the question, but is that misleading maybe? Yeah, sometimes, maybe not always, but sometimes. Um, and that's just because of the incentives that we have built in, right? It's just we're, we're just working towards publications and whatever will get us there in the path of least resistance <laughs> is what we're going to follow I suppose yeah do you feel the um I wanted to ask do you feel like that pressure still in the industry world of in terms of publishing positive results and how is that yeah that's an interesting question and something that I didn't appreciate about industry until I started working in industry and these guys want to publish all of their results basically and I was pretty surprised actually and they're like no publications help to show that you know we've had our work and our results peer reviewed and it you know builds up sort of a reputation for us so that when we go to you know ask for funding they can say oh well it's not just you guys sort of I don't want to say rigging your data but you know yeah. they can see that there's some you know robustness to it so yeah I found it interesting that in industry they do want to publish and in terms of publishing positive results yeah they definitely have only focused on that so the project that i was working on for my postdoc we're still looking at publishing those results but we don't think we're going to pursue that project any further for the different reasons for the business um and then there was another project that we were working on actually for a therapeutic for covid with a completely different molecule um and turns out yeah that that molecule actually had no effect and it's interesting because we know that there are other groups working on a similar type of molecule and well if we if we publish that maybe they would know that this this particular molecule probably isn't going to do anything but they've said probably just going to leave that and focus on something else and i was talking to a friend who i used to work with at latrobe who was actually or had a really interesting take on it she she said exactly that like well, you could spin that and we could publish it and say, you know, this is probably not worth pursuing for other groups because, you know, in this model it had no effect. Yeah, exactly. Like people have to point. communicate that. You have to yeah. uh, yeah. Oh, that's so sad. Mm. And I suppose with so many people working on specifically COVID and they're going to figure it out probably sooner rather than later. <laughs> yes, <but>. sooner. <laughs> and And... To be fair, you know, this is a slightly different um, formulation of this this molecule, let's say, mm -hmm. that, that our company has. So, you know, in a, in a different mixture or a different formulation, maybe it will work. You just, you don't know. So that's probably another reason why I'm not so concerned about the fact that we're not publishing this particular result. But 
I, I do I do admire and, and like that for the company we we do want to actually publish our results. Yeah. So I think that's good that industry are, are publishing. Oh yeah. And I think that yeah, it might even be more important once you get to a clinical setting that you do publish your results. Oh, absolutely. I think that's has to be communicated, right? Like people are going to want to know mm. and, and maybe like a lay person isn't going to go and, and try to read that paper and figure it out, but you might have someone, you know, who studies that thing and, you know, a family member is going to get on that medicine. They might be interested in like reading into it, but I would hope at least that the doctors that are prescribing certain things are reading the publications on those, on those medicines. But I don't know how they keep up, like, especially with all the COVID research, like you guys have probably seen oh. how many papers a day are coming out. Like I was like so hundreds. On, oh yeah. yeah. How can any one person keep up with that? Like I feel for them. Oh yeah. No, I have not read anything about COVID in a while because it just got to be mm. so overwhelming like the papers coming out every yeah. day were oh my god I can't even I don't even know what they're talking about in half of them too but yeah <laughs> well I remember uh, I remember listening to a podcast where a medical doctor told he had research staff that he would have like sort through the articles but he was still the bottleneck so they would bring all the interesting articles sort through as much as they could and say hey this is what we think you should read uh, but then again, you still have the medical doctor bottlenecking that process. But still, it's a lot to keep up with with even that process. So yeah, interesting. So Elise, leaving that data unpublished from your like dissertation and your your honors project, and I this is really interesting because in America, like we're kind of funded by grant money, which is partially paid for by like tax paying, right? Like so, our tax is collected, mm -hmm. and then that funds the government agencies that give scientists grants to do their projects. So, and I, I'm not sure how it works in Australia, so you have to let us know, but uh, does that, leaving that data unpublished, if you're on a, using grant money for that, does that, in your view, waste taxpayer dollars? Yeah, um, the system here is pretty similar that the taxpayers essentially pay for the government funding. So, yeah, that's the same. Does it waste taxpayers' dollars? I, I think yes and no. And the reason I say yes and no is that, yes, you know, it's the system is inefficient because you're right, it's ultimately someone could repeat that experiment in a different lab, not knowing that we have these preliminary results, let's just say, and they do it all over again, whereas they could have maybe saved some time or get in a feel for where maybe where to start so that they get a head start mm -hmm. if we had to publish those results. So in that sense, it's a waste. But at the same time, I kind of think that especially for basic research that maybe there's some element of maybe serendipity that's important. So even if, say, that that work was published but another lab who was working on a similar project didn't happen to see it but they still went off and were going to run the same project anyway or by not seeing my data, they designed it slightly differently with their own sort of approach to it that might yield a different result or or a broader result or a more robust result or something slightly different so that they might arrive at a slightly different conclusion or they might head in a different direction that maybe they wouldn't have if they had have seen previously published data in that same sort of field. So I think firstly we could definitely be more efficient in our approach so if there were more published data that have, you know, insignificant findings, whether that's 
no differences or it is a difference but it's just you know not particularly interesting or enough to make a story Mm -hmm. uh, on its own yeah maybe some level of serendipity would be important so yes we could make it more efficient but at the same time I don't think that being 100% efficient would actually be the best model for research I don't don't know if that makes sense but it's sort of Mm -hmm. trying to get the thoughts out of my head yeah yeah no I get it I get it no I just I so before we ask the next questions I really just wanted Mm -hmm. to transition to the industry part because yeah, sure. with the, this being our second episode, we haven't talked, we've all talked about academia. And I know as a PhD student, even before I got on the program, that was the only path that I knew. And it's only until recently, like they've told us, oh, you can also go industry. So just talking about that, like what brought you to that? And then kind of the funding is a really interesting thing for me too, in terms yeah. of how you're securing your funding. What's the difference that you've seen between academia and industry? Okay, so how I got into industry um, and why, maybe why I got into industry. For sure. So I've always been interested in the translational side of research. That's just the area that I'm particularly interested and passionate about. So I sort of always knew that I wanted to, to maybe move into that side of research. One reason. The second reason is probably... I'm also really into business, so I've also wanted to get more exposure to that sort of field as well uh and so and then thirdly I suppose I sort of just had this opportunity sort of just appear at the end of 2019 to to work in this hybrid position so where I was in an academic setting but working on an industrial project and so I thought this will be great I'll get a feel for both worlds and then I'll be able to decide you know what I want to do and about a year into the two-year postdoc, I was like, I do not want to stay in academia. <laughs> there are so many things. Like, don't get me wrong, like, academia is great and if it works for you, definitely stay. If you love it, stay. But if you don't, there are so many other options. You don't have to stay. Like, literally thousands of different job titles that aren't, you know, some aren't even in science. If you don't even want to do science anymore, you can, you can go on and completely change careers and you'll be successful. I know lots of people who have done that. So that's doable. Anyway, circling back to, to me and what I was saying. Yeah, so at the end of my first year of the two-year postdoc, sort of realised I didn't want to stay in academia and was, you know, at the, coming closer to the end of my second year when my contract was due to finish, I was starting to think, okay, I should start thinking about other jobs and, and what I want to do next. And then the company that I was collaborating with came to me in about September when my contract was due to expire in January. And they said, we've restructured the company and we have a position available for scientific project manager and we think you'd be great because we've already worked with you. These are the sorts of things we'll be doing. Basically, side note really quickly, this company that I work with don't have a lab. We don't we don't actually have a centralised lab. And I was telling this to Abby um, the other day. So we outsource all of our research. So we approach different labs around the world who specialize in what we want to work on and say, look, we'll pay you sort of as a on a contract to do this work with our drug and test it against these these different pathogens so that we can get your expertise and also sort of make the process a little bit more efficient so that we don't have to set ourselves up in our labs to to do that all ourselves. So my job is basically to coordinate all of those projects and collaborations that we have and also make sure that we have the right 
preclinical data to support the clinical trial that we're trying to get up and running and also just managing a bunch of different um, relationships that are related to that as well. So manufacturing of the drug and also regulatory consultants to make sure, you know, we'll get approval through the FDA because we're looking at um, doing this in the US and a bunch of those other things. So again, sorry, that was a long tangent. No, no. <laughs> um, I think it's so cool. Actually, I'm I'm jumping ahead to like yeah. the question that I wanted to ask about you or ask about your company because mm-hmm. this is something we were talking about the other day. But being able to contract out work, I think that would produce a lot less like environmental waste because you're you don't have to set up a whole building, uh, a whole waste management system, a whole uh, mm-hmm. source of plastic. Like you can find someone who already has all of this stuff who already has the expertise and who can do that for you and I I think it is probably one of the most sustainable things that you could do in academia and I think that is so cool so do you do you agree do you think that that is kind of like a sustainable thing or maybe am I looking at it the wrong way no definitely it's that's definitely one of the advantages like why buy a 500 mil bottle of media if you only need 50 mils of it you know yeah. what are you going to do with it when it's finished or yeah why buy 100 tubes if you only need 10 yeah when you could just give the money to a lab who already has all of those all of the equipment you know yeah all of the consumables and all of the expertise yeah so like uh for example, you worked in animal models. I was working in cell culture models. And if I needed to run like an extra experiment, all I had to do is sit another couple plates of cells. It cost me nothing but 10 minutes of time and maybe a little bit of extra media, but it's a whole other experiment mm. that informed a completely different project uh, unrelated to mine that was ended up being super helpful for something I, I can't remember exactly what i was doing i did too many cell culture experiments but i already had the media made i already had the cells they were already ready to be passed i already had the well plates to do it I was gonna yeah. do it anyway might as well like put a little bit of extra and i i think it, it's awesome collaboration between industry and academia yeah I'm that's for it, it for me <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right paul yeah so did i answer that question in the end what did I answer that question? I think so. Wait, yeah. Paul, do you think okay. so? Okay. I, I think so. I think we agree. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> this is fine, everybody. Yeah, We're I, having a great time. <laughs> well, I, didn't, I didn't even know industry did that. That's all That's all new to me. So that's really interesting to hear for sure. Yeah, same. I was like, what? Are you kidding me? Also, how do I work there? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, Here's what I'll do. I'll kind of segue us into the last bit of stuff here, which is talking about sustainability, because a lot of what I'm interested in and why I really wanted to get into this podcast was, you know, we have a lot of waste of time and labor and uh, just expenses and consumables and all of that for things that don't get published. And, And what does that mean for like the sustainability and like the ethics or the ethical standing of a lab? right? Like we produce so much waste to have nothing produced from it, right? So we, we do the project, we write the paper, or we do the project, we analyze the data, we don't publish the paper. So we've wasted like plastics and other resources and glass bottles and things that we cannot reuse. So um, 
I guess that's what we're going to kind of transition into. So the first thing I would want to ask is, and maybe this is kind this will be kind of going back in time for you. Did you have a lot of waste production in your lab when you were in um, grad school and a postdoc? Yeah. yeah. Yes and no. Like I know that we definitely had heaps of waste, but towards maybe the last few years that I was in the lab, we were doing a lot to try and reduce that impact. So we started implementing like a soft plastics bin in the lab. So you know, all of the flasks and anything that's wrapped in like a soft plastic, like a film wrap yeah. that's, you know, still clean because we haven't exposed it to anything nasty yet. We just put in that soft plastics bin and we would fill up like a pretty decent-sized bin in like a week. And, yeah, it was crazy how much of that, you know, we could actually save from going to landfill and maybe get it recycled. So we were doing that. We were reusing our tubes sort of our 50 mil falcons and maybe 15 mil falcons where we could when it wasn't didn't have to be sterile so for a lot of like if we were you know washing a western blot or something yeah. in, in either like a little tub or a, you know we just rinse the tube out and and use it again or for antibodies we'd probably do the same thing um and sort of reuse as much as possible um, we were also looking at transitioning from using the plastic aspirator tips in cell culture to the glass ones where you can actually wash them out yes. and autoclave them and, yes. and reuse them. You just, it's disgusting how many plastic tips you go through in cell <laughs> oh, culture. Yeah. Oh, my right? God. I imagine you know, you know what I mean. <laughs> it is absurd. <laughs> yeah, and and trying to also look at our our usage of electricity and turning the water baths off when we weren't using them and that sort of stuff as well. And Abby, I think I was telling you that another lab at La Trobe were working with my green lab. Yes. To, yes. Oh my yeah, gosh, yes. Yeah, to increase um, their, or to, I suppose to reduce their impact on the environment and make their lab more sustainable. So doing a bunch of those sorts of things and ultimately they get a little certification to say that they've, they've done all of that. So, yeah. We were not quite on their level, but we were definitely working towards it. Yeah. Paul, you've ever heard of that? No, not at all. Okay, it's called it's called My Green Lab, and at least you're going to have to back me up because yeah. I only rem I haven't gotten a chance to look at it thoroughly, but basically you kind of go through like a training course with them and you mm -hmm. get a certificate at the end, but you learn how to reduce your waste as a lab. Mm -hmm. Right, is that yeah. Reduce your waste, but also anything else that will have an impact on the environment ultimately. So there was also like a, a freezer challenge we were doing at our institute as well where you had to sort of maximise the efficiency for your freezers, so making sure the ice was cleared out and that you had it filled appropriately and properly so that it was using the electricity efficiently and there was there was less wastage ultimately, things like that, yeah. I just spent three days in my current lab chipping out ice and this was actually over winter break when we didn't have any experiments going on and i was like i'm doing it you guys i'm tackling in the freezer i took everything out put them in like i uh, had we had i don't know 50 or more ice packs yeah. so I put everything in these like styrofoam coolers that we use we reuse yeah Heck yeah yeah um and just like chipped away at this thing and I was like oh my god we're go well I'm gonna make a lot more room in it now and it's a lot more organized um but yeah I don't think a lot of people know that if you don't de-ice your freezers like it just sucks energy yeah they're terrible 
Like no one knows it. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, know. yeah. It's one of those jobs that no one really wants to do. It's too hard at that at that time. You're like, oh, I'll come back to it. I'll do it one day. But you've really got to just book it in and do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because it takes a long time. Three days, because you know. I don't want to have the freezer open for that long because mm. I didn't like unplug it and let it completely thaw like yeah. I should have. I was like, I have a couple hours a day where I'm not working on something that I can go and chip and I put an audio book in, which is like, <laughs> no, that was a great noise. Sorry, everybody. Um, <laughs> if you had seen the visual that went along with it, it would have made sense. Anyway, I can picture it. You still have, <laughs> Good. Do you still have samples in there when you're doing that? Oh yeah. So here was my, here was my process. And in hindsight, I did it the wrong way. Uh, you, Okay, I started at the bottom, and I took everything out. So there's everything out from the very bottom. And I put an ice catcher, or what our ice cooler trays are, where we put ice. You know what I'm talking about? A tray. Little tubs. Yeah. yeah, a tray. Put that underneath. Cleared out the shelf that was on top of it. Put it in the coolers. And then started chipping away and caught all of the ice underneath. Threw that out put everything back on the very bottom, moved the tray up to the top of the shelf, cleared out the shelf above it again, and like repeated until I got all the way to the top. And really I should have started from the top down and not caught anything. Like, I don't, I don't know why I did it that way, but it's okay. I don't, I don't know. You learned from should the just, <laughs> Exactly. Work from the top down. Also fun fact, a minus 20 is going to have like some wires on the top. They're going to look <laughs> like ice. And you're going to really want to like just break it. Don't break it. Don't break it, you guys. I'm ser- I'm dead serious. Go look at a minus 20, like a standard minus 20. And you're going to see these like tracks on the top. They are for like coolant or something. I don't know what they're for. Not but ice. Don't touch them. <laughs> they're not ice. I can assure you. Okay. <laughs> um. So, Paul, do you want to? get us back on track here do you think the scientists should be held responsible for the waste that they produce Mm. uh again yes and no i suppose i think i was thinking that you know scientists it's kind of funny that you know the environmental scientists and the climate scientists are the ones that are telling us that you know this is such an important issue it's critical and yet you know uh, us as their cousins, I suppose, you know, biological scientists, we're not that far removed, but we're still, we're still humans, I think, at the end of the day. Like, and I think, yes, we should be held responsible and accountable for this, but also probably included and treated like any other person who we want to, to help contribute to, yeah. to making this more sustainable. Yeah. So some people, you know, just... They know that it's an issue but either don't know what they can do as an individual or aren't sure that it's going to make a difference so they don't bother. I feel like I'm going all over the place and just sort of... No, I think you're <laughs> you're hitting the nail on the head. Like I, from how, what I see it as is, yeah, we're like very aware of the problem. Being scientists, like we understand mm. like the work other scientists do. But we are also, like you were saying, we're just people and we don't really know what we're supposed to be doing in order to make those changes. And part of that is on the university or the foundation or um, what is the word industry or the industry that you're, you're working in. It's on them to kind of provide what you need as a person in order to reduce your waste. But a lot of the times 
they are not worried about that whatsoever because they're running like a megalith of a business, right? And they're worried about overhead costs and they're worried about like just making sure that the place looks clean. Like they don't care about what happens to the trash after. So I see your point because yes, we are responsible in that we should care and we should do something, but we also are kind of at the mercy of where we work. Right. And that's a really important thing. I think we have to have kind of like a call to action, right? Like Mm -hmm. we have to have universities and industry and businesses get on our side and the problem is like half of them don't really care about climate change right yeah. they're just like eh, everything's gonna be fine yeah yeah well, well it's interesting because yeah. my experiences haven't been from an environmental standpoint it's more so you need to save lab costs because there's only so much money we have in the pool hey. and hey. that is expensive <laughs> it's not oh that's gonna hurt the environment that's gonna do that it's like oh hey like COVID happened gloves are expensive so try to re try to reuse them when you can like, mm. you know try to take yeah them. yeah so exactly paul that's a really interesting it's a really good point right because yeah. if you spin the incentive or you spin what's in it for them then that's how you can actually get people to take action like you've got to say what's the advantage to them what are they going to get out of it and if it is like you say you know they're going to save money absolutely they're going to save money if you're using and buying less um you know consumables or reagents and all of those sorts of things you know and it has a positive impact on the environment and the climate as well and it's like a win-win and it's funny because i'm just remembering how much of how stingy my boss was at, at wanting to buy things. So we just consequently happened to save a lot of money because he was always like, you know, no, you don't need to use that at, you know, the full concentration. Just use half. It still works the same. And oh, you don't need to reuse those, like, you know, you don't have to throw out those tubes. They'll be fine. Reuse it again and yeah, all of those sorts of things. So, you know, saving money. It makes sense now. Saving money and saving the environment definitely go hand in hand so that's a good point cool hey yeah yeah so basically we just need to get everyone on board with it we're gonna save a boatload of money and the environment at the same time yep that's the solution i reckon that's it that's it (laughs) that's how you sell it well thank you so much elise for joining us today i'm so pleased that we got to talk about your work and kind of like where you're at in your sustainable journey and i'm i'm just so thankful that we had the the time together paul you got any final questions or remarks one last question are you ever going back to academia nope okay (laughs) (laughs) it's not for me it's it's like i have great friends who are still in academia who are doing great they're killing it and they just they're just wired differently i'm not wired that way and i'm totally okay with it my specialties lie in some way different and and that's okay i'm, I'm it's not for me <laughs> i've made my face well that's awesome thank you again elise so much for being here and i'll have sean take us away with the music again see you guys next time